welcome to Stories of Impact. I'm your host, Tavia Gilbert, and along with journalist Richard Sergey, every first and third Tuesday of the month, we share conversations about the art and science of human flourishing. I have a question for you. When you hear about kids playing video games, sitting down with their controls, or maybe if they're cutting-edge kids strapping on a VR headset, is your first thought, I'm really glad they're taking such great care of their mental health. They should play more often. Yeah, I didn't think so. I think it's fair to say that many adults, maybe even most adults, think exactly the opposite of this seemingly fantastical idea. We might worry about kids isolating themselves in gameplay, spending too much time on screens at all, especially fear that our young people are being overexposed to violent situations in video games. So what if I told you that by the end of this unusual episode, I would bet that you will find yourself thinking completely differently about the role of video games in the lives of children and teens, and that you might actually look forward to playing video games yourself as a way to become a healthier, happier, more resilient human being. Today, we'll meet a team of researchers and video game makers who I think will help me win this bet. Ready? Meet Dr. Isabella Granick, professor at McMaster University in Hamilton in Canada. Throughout Dr. Granick's career, she has focused on interventions and treatment programs that were most effective for children who struggle with the number one mental health problem that children and youth face, anxiety. Here's Dr. Granick. By the time they're 18 years old, there will be 40% of kids who will be diagnosable with an anxiety disorder. So it's the most prevalent mental health problem. It's very much a global issue, and it has an impact across the board in terms of social relationships, parental relationships, academic functioning, and predicts everything from incarceration to career development and future health and well-being and physical health as well. And to be really clear, we all struggle with anxiety at some point in our lives. So anxiety is a normative, biologically-based emotion that we really need originally to run away from tigers and such. And if we don't have the feelings of anxiety, actually, we're not going to survive and function very well. But it's the chronic sense of anxiety and the inability to regulate that that really becomes the problem. The ability to know how to regulate it, when to regulate it is really important. And if you can get in there early, you have an opportunity to prevent a whole host of both mental health problems as well as physical problems. Catastrophic circumstances like war, poverty, and abuse will obviously cause a whole host of debilitating symptoms, including anxiety. But for young people who are not in those dire situations, what are the causes and the symptoms of anxiety? There are three main causes of anxiety in the moment and across time. The first is unpredictability. When you have things going off that you don't know whether they're going to work out in one way or another, the lack of ability to make choices in your life that have any impact on the world around you. And the third is a sense of no power, so there's nothing to do at all, and you're stuck in a context where you are there's learned helplessness. No matter what you do, there is no impact. The kinds of anxiety symptoms that we think about are things like withdrawal behavior, pulling back from interactions, the inability to stand up for oneself or to go into social interactions without just 
collapsing. So what has historically been the treatment for anxiety? For decades, we've known that there are some predictable ways to help young people learn to regulate their anxiety. So we have conventional programs, perhaps the best known and with the most evidence is cognitive behavioral therapy. And those approaches basically try to teach kids how to think differently so that those thought patterns change the way their emotions are and their behavior in turn changes. Those conventional approaches tend to have success for about 40 to 60%. Only 40 to 60% of children experienced improvement? Dr. Granick wasn't satisfied with that. She was frustrated that despite years of study and effort with conventional therapy, there remained so many kids who found no relief or release from chronic anxiety. So we tried to figure out why is it that CBT can only have so much of an impact on people. And our answer is the delivery model is boring. Young people are asked to either sit in a classroom, a group therapy, or in a clinical sort of context and told to do homework like think of three different ways that you can think of your fearful context that doesn't make you fearful or practice these relaxation techniques by breathing or learn to successively try to be brave in threatening contexts by working yourself up to those scary contexts. All those things work if we can get kids to do them and to practice those skills. The problem is that nobody wants to sit around in a classroom hearing those lessons and nobody practices them. And so we went to video games. Wait, video games? What's the link to video games? Dr. Granick began a breakthrough scientific exploration when she observed how her own children played at home. So I had been spending my evenings sort of frustrated with these conventional approaches. I had two seven-year-old twin boys, and I was trying to figure out, first of all, what's causing them to feel so terrible sometimes, but also what are they doing to make themselves feel better? And I found the world of video games, but not it's not like I hadn't heard of video games before. I still kind of was brought up by Pac-Man and Space Invaders and things like that. But this was an entirely different world of video games where I was starting to lurk in in these forums where kids were talking about their experiences in video games and it sounded entirely different from the things that I had been brought up. There were story, they were talking about art, they were talking about meeting people. And so I bought a video game that I had kept hearing from people was this beautiful experience with lovely art. And I thought, what on earth would this be about? And it was Journey by Sony. It's a beautiful game. And halfway through the game, I'm bawling my eyes out. It is a beautiful, emotionally evocative hero's journey experience. And you met these anonymous strangers who helped you through emotionally difficult periods in this game. First of all, I had to literally learn to face fearful things in this game. And so I went through my own process of kind of an exposure therapy going, I don't know if I can do this and just realize these are exactly the internal machinations that I would love kids to go through. And this was a commercial game that wasn't designed for anxiety. It was just designed to, you know, do what video games do oftentimes, challenge and, you know, inspire people to get over it. But I hadn't realized that this was not the AAA billion-dollar world of video games. This was a world of indie developers who are artists first, and they use games as their palette. 
And it was an entirely different world for me. And these are people who themselves sometimes are struggling with mental health problems, and they're expressing that through the art that they're doing in games. These video games were taking in the intrinsic joy of play, play which has been evolutionarily essential for our development, and they were putting it into a digital format, but still sort of galvanizing the same kind of emotional struggles and the social connections and so on in a video game context. At the end of the game, I brought my children in who were seven years old and they just watched with this awe. It was just a beautiful aha experience where art and science met. That aha experience set Dr. Granikoff on an unexpected new course, not only as scientific researcher, but as entrepreneur slash video game developer. Her first breakthrough product? Mindlight, an unconventional, anxiety-treating video game for young people that draws on traditional cognitive behavioral therapy techniques, developed at GemLab, directed by Dr. Granick. GemLab stands for Games for Emotional and Mental Health Lab, and so we generally focus on young people from the ages of 8 to 24. Mindlight is a video game that is controlled by neurofeedback, your own neurofeedback waves. So you take a 99-buck headset, and it has a one-channel EEG sensor that is on your forehead, and that reads your alpha, beta, theta waves at your scalp. That readout of your brain waves is the direct input to the game. So the more calm you are, the more light grows in this game from your headset in the game. The more anxious you are, the darker it gets. And so the idea is that the story in the video game is that it's a haunted house and you're trying to lighten the whole haunted house and bring light to the house so that you can save granny. And to do that, you have to overcome increasingly fearful stimuli that you approach in the game. And your only defense is your mind light. And so there's no shooting, there's nothing, but there are scary things that come at you. They cannot get at you if you're lit up. The only way to be lit up is to stay calm. The genius of mind light? We can deliver the same kinds of training programs, the same kind of skill-building exercises and practice, but in a context that is fun, that delights young people. And the most important, maybe, is it's in a context that's most relevant to children and teenagers. These kids, as we know, are spending anywhere between one to three to five hours per day playing video games. They are obviously deeply immersed, so engagement is never a problem in trying to get kids to play video games. Video games also have this amazing advantage that they are able to modify the difficulty level based on the player themselves. So as players learn, the game becomes harder and harder. And so there's this beautiful modality and a dynamic ability to adjust to make kids stay in this flow state of learning, which you do not get in a therapy session or in any kind of like prevention program in a school program. So video games were a sort of way for us to go, wow, we can enter these children's world and be able to help them learn skills while they feel like they have agency, they have predictability. They're being listened to in terms of the kinds of modalities that they want to engage with. 
Dr. Grenick knew she needed to draw on others' talent and expertise in order to make Mind Light not only scientifically sound, but entertaining and as beautiful as the games that inspired her to recognize their potential therapeutic value. So she looked to collaborators. My name's Ken Kuntz. I'm the creative director of the Games Emotional Mental Health Lab, the Gym Lab for short. As the creative director, I design the video games. I work intensely with researchers and other designers to both facilitate the creation, the strategy, the implementation of our playful interactive media, our designs, and our products. I lean on the familiarity of a lot of game mechanics that the game industry uses all the time. I need that familiarity for players to be comfortable and understand what's going on in the game so that I can introduce more complex game mechanics that are built around the behavior that we're trying to assess and intervene in. It's in that that makes what we do a bit different. It makes it more unique because our goal is focused on achieving that target, whether again is to intervene or assess that behavior. That is the ultimate goal of what we're doing. It's one of the things that set us apart from most other gamification applications is that it's not about just the engagement and trying to make things fun so people do what we want them to do. We're trying to identify and then address the needs of the user for who's going to be playing our games. What need are we addressing? And every design decision always comes back to how is this addressing that need? Since mental health is a very broad topic, we start by targeting a very specific behavior in that mental health that we're trying to affect. So sometimes it's a symptom that leads to a behavior issue. Sometimes it's the other way around. Once we identify that target behavior, I pull into my bag of tricks of game mechanics to manipulate you know, the environment, the context, the thought process, the feedback loop. These are all the things that I'm trying to do in order to reach that target behavior. And there's one tool in Kuhn's and Dr. Granick's toolbox that makes games such as Mindlight particularly effective. Storytelling can be incredibly powerful. We can use storytelling to model emotions or behaviors that make it difficult for some children to be able to express themselves. This is going back to the beginning of time, how storytelling can be deeply emotional and impactful. I think where games use storytelling is the immediate feedback, where it takes storytelling from being a passive media to an interactive media, where now I can, as a child or as a player, I can take part in the story that I'm consuming. I can make choices or I can experiment, I can explore in the story and then see how what my impact has had on that story. Those are the benefits of storytelling in games in any sort of playful interactive media. When Dr. Granick and her colleagues measure the impact of storytelling and role-playing games like Mindlight versus traditional CBT on anxiety symptoms, what do they find? Here's Dr. Hanukkah Schulte, assistant professor at the University of Twente in the Netherlands and Dr. Granick's Gem Lab co-director. Kids who have some symptoms of anxiety, if they wanted to participate in our study, we allocated them to either mind lights or talk therapy. Then we measured some anxiety symptoms with them, got them into either the talk therapy group or mind light, measured it again afterwards and three months later. And what we saw, and we replicated this four times, is that the mind light group did as well as the kids who got talk therapy which is our gold standard if we try to treat anxiety uh, among young children. So 
that's a really amazing result to do that with just a piece of technology, which is MindLight. So how does MindLight work? What makes it as effective as traditional talk therapy? So in MindLight, one of the things that we do is exposure. So we are exposing the children to things they might find scary. So there might be a closet that is really dark and scary and there are sounds coming out of it. But when they walk up to it, basically battle their own fear, they will see that it's not that scary after all because it's just a closet. So exposing them to their own fears helps them to basically learn there are many things out there that might seem scary, but if I just go there and see what's going on, it's not that scary after all. MindLight has, next to exposure, other mechanisms or mechanics that we use to help them battle their own anxiety. And one of them is neurofeedback. So it's a sensor on their forehead, which measures basically how relaxed they are compared to how stressed out or anxious they are. And what we tell them is that they can really move through the game by using their own minds. And by breathing slowly and really focusing on being calm, you're also able to calm down your own brain waves, let's say, and use your mind to go through the game. And what they learn and also what the game says to them is if they are able to calm down in very scary situations, the room will light up and will become less scary. Uh, so what they basically learn through this whole process is if they're able to calm down their own body, their environment will also change and become better. Dr. Granick underscores how effective that embodied lesson in the context of gameplay can be for young people. One of the important things that kids do learn and they can't articulate is that they themselves have the power to control how they feel about the world around them. Because this thing, like we tell them a million times, change your thoughts and the world changes around you, the way that they respond to you, etc. But in the game, they literally change their thoughts and their breathing patterns, and something physical in the world changes. The effectiveness of specifically tailored games like MindLight, then, isn't up for debate. But what is still in question is whether the benefits of video games designed for mental health applications outweigh the risks. Aren't scientists putting kids at risk when they increase their exposure to screens and gaming? Shouldn't the goal be to minimize screen time in general, and gaming in particular, and to encourage healthier behaviors? Here's Dr. Granick. There are some basic misconceptions that we have tried to address empirically or at least collaborate with other researchers to amplify their good data. Video games cause violence. There's extremely good data to say that that's just not true. It's not even correlationally true, but also very good longitudinal data that the relationship between real-world violence and playing any video games, including Call of Duty or the most hardcore first-person shooter games, there's no evidence for that. Really important to recognize that. The second one that's more current maybe and contentious is the relationship between mental health outcomes and social media use. And when we do studies looking at the relationship between people's self-report of what they do on their phone and what they actually do when we collect data, passive data off their phone, has almost a zero correlation. So we know that people are clueless about what they're actually doing in their digital phones, and that's really important. So we can throw out most of the data that started out there. And that message is really important because there are so many parents feeling 
deeply concerned and guilty, especially the last two years during the pandemic, that they've allowed their kids this freedom on their digital devices. And in fact, we see very little negative impact. There are kids who are already vulnerable, and that's really important, right? Kids who are already struggling in poor neighborhoods, in poor educational systems, in poverty, who then are on their phones in ways that probably are not helping them because they're amplifying some of their negative feelings. So it doesn't mean that there's no impact or interaction, but this kind of very simple social media is destroying a generation is just untrue and the data doesn't hold up on it. Those critics are in some ways concerned and echoing the same thing that has been echoing for 150 years, maybe longer. If you look at you know, the scary headlines of the radio was going to take away, you know, people's heart and souls. Then it was heavy metal, there's horror movies, there's comic books. Media, new media especially, has traditionally always got this bad rap and was going to destroy the young generation, rock and roll, etc. right? So video games has long been saddled with the same kind of bad rap. So the first thing I would say is that this is nothing new, this kind of panic, moral panic in particular. Second of all, we all, I think, can agree that none of this digital interaction is gonna go away. If anything, it's just gonna grow. We work now, we socialize, we fall in love, we play, we learn, we go to school, all of those things all through a screen to some degree. And so, first of all, not all of those digital interactions including games, are one thing or another, good or bad. What we're most concerned about is thinking about with whom are you online? What are you doing? And what developmental function is it serving? Because young people are growing up with the exact same developmental needs that they have for centuries. They still need autonomy. They still need a sense of uh, belongingness. They still need a feeling of agency in their worlds. And where they get that from is right now being served both by the physical and the digital worlds in really interesting ways. I can point to data that we have done ourselves. We have collected and also reviewed ourselves showing that there is a slew of cognitive, emotional, motivational, and social benefits associated playing video games of different sorts. Second of all, we know that anywhere between 80 to 90% of video game play right now is social. So this stereotype of the gamers downstairs in the basement playing by himself is just not representative of anybody playing video games anymore. They might play once in a while by themselves, but the vast majority of video game play is social. And it's social in really interesting ways. They play next to each other, competitively or cooperatively. They are almost always playing within games with other kids that they know already from school in the game. And they're often on this second or third screen where they have their phone next to each other talking while they're playing the video games. So I walk downstairs where my 16-year-old son is talking to his girlfriend. Super like mushy, lovey, wonderful things while he's playing League of Legends and literally playing while talking really emotionally and in open, wonderful ways. Most eight to 12 year olds right now gossip and like talk about their day while they're playing Fortnite. It's just a thing that's in the background. It's not about the shooting, it's about it doing something. And they're also having these lovely conversations. This is not to minimize those kids that are for eight hours 
only playing video games and are not getting the social connection that they need and so on. And there are therapists that are trying to deal with that kind of thing. But the general idea that there's an entire generation addicted is absolutely preposterous. There's absolutely no scientific evidence for that. And we, you know, perhaps most importantly for me, I think we are doing a serious disservice and perhaps even the mental health harm comes from the stigma associated with labeling kids as addicted or depressed because they go to their phone for some joy, some social connection, and so on. And I think that stigmatizing is something we have to think about as a society, how we engage with that messaging. And here's Dr. Schulte's perspective. I don't think that young people or young children need to spend all their time on a screen. Everything you do too much is not good for you. However, I think these screens are here and they're here to stay. And we should be able to understand what they're finding there. So what is in that interaction with those screens for young people that makes them go there? So if we as researchers, but also as parents and teachers and clinicians understand what they are doing there, we are also able maybe to support the parts that really work for them, but also maybe talk to them about the parts that might be detrimental to their development. So what parts don't work and, and can be even dangerous. And the same goes for the amount of time they're spending there. It's not merely about time, but it's especially about what they're doing, with whom they're doing it and why. Dr. Schulte adds that the benefit of games like Mindlight isn't just using neurofeedback to teach players how to manage their anxiety, but teaching them resilience. With video games, it's a virtual playground. It's also a virtual training playground. So what we can do is to help people train up certain skills that they need and that can help them to become more resilient. So helping people to face failure, but also overcoming it by persevering, basically, is something that we can beautifully do in games. Because basically, commercial games are built for this as well. They actually challenge you all the time to do something you cannot do yet, but probably you can do if you do it oftentimes. And if you really train that and go at it again and again and again, you probably succeed at some point. You're learning to persevere in the face of failure. And that's basically a skill that we all should have uh, to become very resilient creatures. If you are resilient, you probably are able to get through life in hopefully an oftentimes happy state. Everyone will face horrible things probably throughout their lifetime, but being able to be resilient in those phases of your life will be able to make you more happy, more fulfilled, and also flourish more over time. Being able to fail, but overcome that and win the next time are all things that we learn through play throughout our lifetimes. So I think that the skills that we learn through play, being resilient, being able to persevere in the face of failure are, of course, all related to having a good mental health and flourishing. Dr. Granick agrees that her mission and the goal of GemLab isn't just to treat one aspect of mental health. The mission is a more expansive one. We've actually moved from a pure definition of mental health and anxiety and depression and preventing and treating that to a more broad focus on building emotional resilience and mental strength and well-being. So the difference there isn't as big as you might think. For us, we've become increasingly interested in designing games and apps that help build social connection, a sense of belonging, emotional competence and resilience 
which also help prevent anxiety and depression. Human flourishing is this beautiful umbrella term for the kinds of things I've tried to articulate that are not in this corner of just clinical. It's about, first and foremost, belonging and social connection that I think is deeply important. Figuring out ways to build and have community and community connection, the ability to talk with one another, to be both honest and brave enough to be critical and yet have the resilience to hear criticism as well, to build teams that are able to feel coherent and excited and emotionally like engaged, as well as to be able to take the brunt of negative emotions that will happen if you're doing good work and failures. All that requires emotional resilience. All that requires flexibility and the ability to have a language that you share with others that facilitates important work that's always hard and always emotional. One of the things that I love about the Stories of Impact podcast is that it never fails to surprise me. And it disproves mythology I would have easily believed to be true, like the assumption that screen time and gaming are inherently unhealthy, especially for kids. And this podcast demands that I instead look dispassionately at empirical data measurement as a way to expand my thinking to embrace scientific truths. So, did Ken Coons, Dr. Hanukkah Schulte, Dr. Isabella Granick, and I win our bet? Are you more open-minded about the potential health benefits of gaming? Are you surprised? Hey, put down that video game control. I'm talking to you. Just kidding. Keep on playing. It might be good for you. I'm really glad that you follow our podcast and that you're part of the Stories of Impact community. If you loved this episode, and if you love what you learn every other week, I'd really appreciate it if you'd help us grow our audience. As I've mentioned in past episodes, it's a scientific fact that most often podcasts are discovered through referral— when fans who love the show tell others about it. So please share stories of impact with other curious souls like yourself so we can reach new listeners. And it really makes a big impact for us if you take a moment to give us a five-star rating and leave a short review. You can always retweet us or share our Instagram or Facebook posts. And if you want to go back and listen to past episodes, you can find all of those conversations on your favorite podcast player or at storiesofimpact.org. This has been the Stories of Impact podcast with Richard Sergey and Tavia Gilbert. Written and produced by TalkBox Productions and Tavia Gilbert with senior producer Katie Flood. Music by Alexander Filipiak. Mix and master by Kayla Elrod. Executive producer, Michelle Cobb. The Stories of Impact podcast is generously supported by Templeton World Charity Foundation.